You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Tristan. Worship team, good morning. Welcome to Grace. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here today, and as you can tell, I've got something going on. I've been on antibiotics for a while, so, but if I'm fist pumping instead of shaking, you'll understand what that is. I want to begin this morning by asking you to imagine that you're in a small boat on the ocean. Let's make it a rowboat. You had been on a large boat, but something went wrong and you found yourself in the ocean. It just so happened that you're You see this raft next to you with oars attached to the side. And you crawl in, do the calculations on the sun because you're on your own and you're heading towards what you think will be land. Sure enough, after a day and a half, according to your best calculations that have somehow worked out, you see land from a distance. And the closer you get, the more you realize there's something wonderful going on on shore. Uh, You feel better and better about your destination. I mean, the closer you get, the more you realize something special is going on. The lights, the deliriously happy people who are well-behaved, believe it or not, Aromas that have never graced your olfactory senses. The laughter and the king. Wait, a king? Yes, you you somehow figure out there's a king on the land. And the people are delighted in him. And you can tell that that he loves them very much. I forgot to mention that there are high-powered binoculars in the rowboat in a lockbox that, that are there. So you can see what's going on. And so you start heading towards shore, and the closer you get with the tides helping you, all of a sudden, you're realizing that you're having to fight the water. You're, having to, you're in a rip current, and it takes you, you see it, you want to be there, but you just can't get there. So that's how I felt this week, studying about the millennium, right? I see this beautiful period in which Jesus is going to be ruling on earth as king, and yet the longer you study, the more it looks, feels like you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. I'm speaking, of course, about the 1,000-year period of amazing peace and prosperity described in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10, that comes, that arrives, well, that's the problem. We're not exactly sure when that thousand years is going to get here. Uh, The title of the message is, What's the Big Deal About the Millennium? And it will be a lot like last week's message, more of a study than a sermon. And it's an overview of the different views about the millennium. First, though, I want to give an overview of what this message is going to look like. I'm going to talk about, first, what to notice and anticipate 
as we read the text. There are just a few things I want you to be looking for when we read the text. And then second, the text will be read. And then we'll think about the four primary views around the millennium. We're going to talk about key elements of of each position. Then there'll be scriptural support, some of the verses that they use. And then we'll talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each view about the millennium. And then at the end, there's going to be a call to unity as we wait for Jesus' return. Revelation 20 of course, is near the end of the book, near the very end of the Bible. One of the questions that we'll wrestle with when we get to the book itself is whether the prophecies in Revelation, and there are a few, are sequential, in other words, written in order of events as they will occur, or are they cyclical, using the literary device of recapitulation? Just tuck that word away. We'll get to it soon enough. Recapitulation. Perhaps you've never heard anyone even speculate as to whether or not the events in Revelation do not occur in order. It's not prophesied in that way. The view you adopt of these four views of the millennium will have a major impact not only on the way that you interpret Revelation, but the way you interpret all of Scripture together as well. Even so, all the views that we're talking about this morning are mainstream in orthodoxy. They are all founded on a firm commitment to the authority of Scripture. We're not talking about theologically conservative versus theologically liberal. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, whether we are premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here are some things to look for in the text as we begin to read in just a moment. First, the universe is not divided into two equal forces. It only takes one angel to bind Satan. <laughs> only one. Isn't that interesting? I appreciated what Jim said, no, the gospel is not plan B. We have a sovereign God who is over all things. Second, to think about the millennium is to think about the kingdom. There's a lot of kingdom language in the New Testament. The only place we find millennium is here in, first, uh, in Revelation um, 20 verses 1 to 10. And then three, there are a lot of unanswered questions that, this, that will be addressed in our text today, next year in our study of Revelation. We won't have time to get to him today. Questions about the mark of the beast, the first resurrection, the second death, the lake of fire, Gog and Magog, all of those will be answered or at least addressed when we get to Revelation next year. For now, we want to think about the millennium. Now, understand this. It, if you are premillennial in your views and you're looking for a tribulation, a seven-year tribulation at, at the end of which Jesus will come, you may think we're talking about those things, tribulation, whether we're, you believe the rapture is going to come before the tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, or at the end of the tribulation. No, this is a broader 
picture that we're talking about. What do you believe about those 1,000 years? So maybe you know these very well. Maybe you've never even considered that there are different views about what these 1,000 years mean. So, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. This is the Apostle John who is writing. And he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city from last week, Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> the looming question for today is about those 1,000 years. When do they occur if, in fact, they do literally occur? Your answer will be determined whether you interpret Revelation literally or symbolically. There's a case to be made for both. Remember, this is not conservative or liberal. This is literal or symbolic. This morning, like last Sunday morning, will be somewhat of an introduction and an overview to a topic that will impact the rest of our studies on eschatology, beginning with when we get back to Daniel Seven. So hopefully that makes a little sense. While we took a, a break after chapter six, these are important truths that we have to understand or important views that we have to understand before we get back to Daniel seven. Along the way, we're going to go deeper 
on along, along the way on our study in eschatology, we're going to go deeper on the four primary views about the millennium that will be introduced today. But remember, this is just an overview. The four millennial positions are premillennialism, historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Premillennialism which is broken into two subcategories, is the belief that Jesus will turn, return pre or before the millennium occurs. He comes up, establishes the millennium. Uh, Post-millennialists believe that Jesus will return after the thousand years have been completed. And then the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth will be established or we go straight into eternity. Amillennialism is, it's well, the prefix A, so amillennialism means that there is no millennium, no literal thousand-year reign on the earth, and that these thousand years are symbolic and the kingdom is being lived out now. Another way <clears throat> of saying this, premillennialists believe Jesus comes before the millennium. Postmillennialists believe Jesus comes after the millennium. Millennialists believe, ah, there ain't going to be no millennium. So that's how you can remember those. But there's that double negative again. It's already been acknowledged that to reference the millennium is to reference the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom began when John the Baptist announced it. Matthew 3, chapter 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It is here. It is among you, Jesus will say later. The kingdom of God broke into the world at the coming of Christ. And when John announced the kingdom, it was breaking into the world. Most of us believe the kingdom of God has already arrived with Jesus, but it is not yet here in its fullness. Already, not yet. It's the same with our salvation. Already we have been saved, but not yet saved from this presence of sin. We have been saved from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, but not from the presence of sin. Already our sanctification has begun in us. We are not who we used to be, but we still are somewhat how we used to be. And one day we'll be delivered already, not yet. We'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. So with all of these, so many of the things that the Lord does in our lives, it's already, but not yet in full. You see the pattern. The trouble with summaries, don't you know, is that you think you know all there is to know about the different positions. Remember the lifeboat. Caught in a rip current. Drifting away from the shore. Just make sure you keep that image in your mind. All the different views about the millennium. Anticipate Jesus' second coming. And the judgment of those who don't know him. The last five verses of Revelation 20, the five verses that we did not read from that chapter this morning, describe the judgment on the enemies of God or those 
who have not yet believed that Jesus is their only hope of eternal salvation and having their sins forgiven. Look, if you're here this morning and, and you, maybe you've overcome addictions. Maybe you have turned your life around in, in some different ways and now you're just trying to be good enough. Well, please understand that the scripture teaches us that we are all hopelessly incapable of redeeming ourselves before a perfect and holy God. And only in understanding that Jesus came to earth to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserved, dying in our place, taking God's punishment for our sins upon himself. Only in believing that and crying out to God for forgiveness and Jesus to save can we hope to be among those who are blessed when the Lord returns. Our only hope of judgment day is for the Lord to step up and say, Father, she belongs to me. This one is one I died for. I died for him. He's mine. And the father says, enter into the blessings of the Lord. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life when you confess Jesus as your son. Your name was written there before the foundation of the world, but that's another sermon for another day. So let's get to the different views, and we'll begin with historic premillennialism. Now, I've sent these out to the home group leaders. If they didn't send it to you yet, they'll send it to you. You'll have these. We can make copies available for all these summaries if you want to. I'm just hoping and praying that I haven't missed a little bit of a, a, a verse here or there. Um, made a, a, got a, a few a little bit confused. The primary belief uh, of historic premillennialists is that believe, it was believed by Christians for the first three years. I mean, that's the way it started off. You know what? Not three years, the first 300 years. Something happened early in the fourth century, though. You remember what it was? Constantine legalized Christianity. And then, in fact, it became almost essential that you believe or you were in big trouble. Before, you were in big trouble if you believed. After, you're in big trouble if you didn't believe. And post-millennialism became a thing after Constantine reigned. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so, historic premillennialism understands Scripture to teach that... Ever since Christ was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, the world is waiting for his return. Times will get increasingly bad with a brief tribulation before Jesus returns and establishes a 1,000-year reign on earth, fulfilling many of the Old Testament prophecies about the king of kings. Satan will be bound during this time. When Jesus returns, he'll rule with the rod of iron, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. Swords will be beaten into farming instruments, and peace will prevail for 1,000 years, even though believers and unbelievers alike live together during the millennium. At the end of that 1,000 years, Satan will be loosed, he'll lead a rebellion, and then he will be crushed and all believers 
along with Satan and his angels, will be thrown into a lake of fire for eternal judgment. One of the key differences between historic premillennialism and dispensationalism is their view on Israel and the church. Historic premillennialists do not make a distinction between God's people, Israel, and the church, just like we talked about last week. Many of the... um, Put this over here just in case. Uh, that's doing something with this microphone. But historic uh, premillennialists uh, don't believe that there's a difference between Israel and the church. So that when you're looking in the New Testament, you see all these verses like we read last week. Peace be on the Israel of God. All who are of faith, who have faith in Jesus are Abraham's children. They don't make that distinction. Thus, Old Testament prophecies of blessing that were given to Israel are relevant to the church as well. We as the church, Hebrews 8, 13, are blessed with the new covenant that Jesus established with his blood. When Jesus returns, both Old Testament and New Testament saints will reign under Jesus' kingship. One of the strengths of this system is that its adherents are motivated to evangelize every tribe and every nation to hasten Jesus' return. Look, it's not that anyone can hurry up Jesus' second coming. But if all nations and every tribe and every every language of that, that people speak, if people from those are all going to be saved or at least hear the gospel, then we should evangelize everywhere. Premillennialists long for and expect Jesus' return. An awareness of Jesus judging his enemies and reigning with a rod of iron encourages holiness. All these benefits are true of other systems, but they are prioritized in, a, in historic premillennialism. Well, what about dispensational premillennialism? How is it different from historic premillennialism? Dispensationalism gets its name from the understanding of Scripture that God works differently in different periods of time. There were seven periods of time or dispensations. The church age is the sixth age and tribulation will be the seventh age and then after or the millennium, I'm sorry, is uh, millennial kingdom is the sixth, seventh dispensation. Dispensationalism is a recent development in church history. Somewhere around 1831, John Nelson Darby left the church of Ireland and founded the Plymouth Brethren. I remember the first time, I, I, uh, actually it was the first time I'd ever gone overseas and one of those trips that I went to the Holy Land back in the early 80s, we went to Rome and this lady was saying, I was in North America one time and someone was, had a, 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 a stove and, and there were ashes in there that they said, these ashes are 200 years old. And they said, in Rome, we've got sewer systems that are 500 years old. I mean, we don't know much about time here in America. But 1831, that's yesterday in terms of 
theological development. You look at the, our statements of faith. Most of that was hammered out a long time ago. It's refined a little bit along the way as heresy requires us to do. But in 1831, Darby left the Church of Ireland, founded the Plymouth Brethren. And he saw a distinction between Israel and the church. And he developed an eschatological system that anticipated a secret rapture of the church leading to a seven-year period of tribulation that is about Israel, not about the church because the church is already gone. It's been raptured out. So there are Jews that are left on the earth and God starts to deal with his chosen people in that time. The blessings that Jews will experience in the millennium when it comes will be different from what Gentile believers experience. This, as God fulfills his promises to his chosen people, the Jews. For instance, in, in uh, dispensationalism, there will be a temple built in the seven-year period known as the tribulation. Uh, some of you are keeping up with red heifers, and you understand that the, the temple has been already pre-built in other places or prefab. It's going to be a prefab thing, and it'll go up very quickly. Uh, dispensationalists believe that that temple's going to be built, and it will last into the millennium. Now, look, there are certain advantages of this. You go back to Ezekiel chapter 40, up through the end of the book of Ezekiel, and there's a temple that is described in great detail. And those measurements do not fit the measurements of Solomon's or Herod's temple, Don't not Solomon's temple, not Herod's temple. It's a temple that the world has never seen. Well, dispensationalists think that that's going to happen during the tribulation, and it will last into the millennium. At the same time, at that time, sacrifices will be given. They'll be given by the Jews hoping for forgiveness of sins, but once Jesus is established, they will be memorial sacrifices. The strengths of this system are much the same as those found in historic premillennialism, a love of evangelism in Jesus' return. But one of the, one of the great benefits of this system that there is a love and appreciation for the Old Testament. And most dispensationalists have a very good, long, broad understanding of Scripture. They can tell you where all sorts of things are in Scripture. The weaknesses of dispensationalism range from its complexity with charts, <clears throat> charts as long as this building. Look, I, I've, I've thought when the Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered, the longest scroll was the book of Isaiah, the entire book of Isaiah, almost the entire book of Isaiah, which really challenges the idea that Isaiah was written by multiple uh, authors, if you are thinking about such things. But when they started rolling that scroll out, it went for 24 feet. That's kind of like some of the dispensational charts that you find. I mean, they'll go up the whole way, double back, and, and come back. Um, in addition to that, um, they have a tendency to think that all the other positions are liberal because they do not rely on a literal interpretation of scripture. Now, dispensationalists 
take Scripture literally whenever it's possible. My New Testament professor, uh, Mississippi fellow, uh, back at Tennessee Temple said, if the plain sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense. That's the way a lot of people interpret Scripture. Certainly dispensationalists do. But we have to recognize that there's a lot of Scripture that you cannot take literally. It's symbolic. In addition to Jesus' parables, it's all over. Apocalyptic literature especially is difficult to take literally. You have to stop at some point and say, well, no, it's not a literal this or that, but we know what it symbolizes. All the systems, again, that we're talking about today are built on a strong commitment to the authority of Scripture. If you fail to look at some Scripture as symbolic, especially apocalyptic books and passages, then you're going to need a complex system to fit it. So that's a summary of the two branches of premillennial theology. I won't take as much time on postmillennialism and amillennialism, though they are serious belief systems. Postmillennialism has had times when it was greatly acknowledged or highly acknowledged as probably the system in ways that it's going to work, especially during times of peace and prosperity. Amillennialism might be the system that most believers worldwide accept. If you are a postmillennialist or an amillennialist, then you know how many premillennialists there are in our church. If you're a premillennialist, my suspicion is you have no idea how many amillennialists. Can I just say ah, post, pre, and you'll know what I'm saying? You don't have any idea how many amillennialists or postmillennialists there are in this church. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about why that might be. Well, let's take amillennialism first, which understands that Jesus not only inaugurated the kingdom when he came to earth, but he left it in motion when he returned to heaven, and thus we are currently in the millennium. It is then, of course, a spiritual kingdom. It's not the new heavens and the new earth, but it is the kingdom on earth as we await the return of the king. Oh, he's ruling. He's ruling through his people. But we await his physical bodily return for the new heavens and the new earth to begin. It's not that this position denies that the millennium will happen, but rather it posits that the millennium is occurring at present. To reach such a conclusion, one would have to interpret the book of Revelation not as futuristic, but rather as describing the war that Satan wages against the church before Jesus' final victory over Satan in a series of seven descriptions of how it occurs. Now, isn't it interesting? So chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, all of these seven, it's broken up and it's cycling, it's recapitulating, it's saying the same thing in a different way. It, it's like watching a soccer match from seven different angles. It's the same match, but you're going to watch it from this angle, then you're going to watch it over here and you're going to see things that you didn't see 
the first time or from other angles. Isn't it interesting that seven is a big number in all of these different views, or at least premillennialism and amillennialism? So, <clears throat> more about that, much more about that when we get to Revelation. Uh, more for this position than any other is the understanding that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It's one of the greatest strengths and one of the benefits to the other systems that amillennialism brings. Amillennialists are neither waiting for Christ to return and establish his kingdom as premillennialists are, nor are they seeking to build the kingdom as postmillennialists are, thus avoiding the temptation to utopianism. I'll get to that in just a minute. Amillennialism uh, understands that there are two kingdoms at play until Jesus returns, the city of man and the city of God. They operate simultaneously. The city of God is never going to overtake the city of man until Jesus returns and, the, and heaven begins, eternity begins. So you do your best to get along. This is all from Augustine and people have built on it through the years. But <clears throat> so two different kingdoms operating at the same time. The weaknesses of amillennialism include the temptation to not be as concerned about evangelism as other systems. Ah, you know, it's important, but what's really important is that Christ is reigning in his church right now. Also, if Christ already reigns, it's possible to not be as concerned about his return. His reign, in fact, lacks the punch of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ's reign on the earth with some unbelievers living at the time. So, strengths and weaknesses to every system. The last system to consider is postmillennialism, which is the belief that the spread of the gospel that is the result of believers obeying the Great Commission of Matthew 28 will lead to a golden age of the world that will usher in the millennium, which in turn will end with Jesus returning to earth for final judgment and the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. So premillennialists believe that Jesus is going to come to establish the millennium. Amillennialist and postmillennialists both think well, amillennialists are sure we're living in that thousand-year period. Postmillennialists are trying to get there as quickly as they can. So Jesus will come at the end of it. <clears throat> the weaknesses. No, I'm sorry. The, we're, we're on postmillennialism. Uh, this is a good, good time to say all four millennial views include a rapture of the church. But only premillennial dispensationalists hold to a secret rapture. So all believe in the rapture. What we studied a couple of months ago, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's happening no matter what you believe about the millennium. But only dispensationalists believe there's a secret rapture. The strengths of postmillennialism should not be difficult to deduce when you think about it. There's a focus on social issues that can be neglected in the other systems, 
Postmillennialists are evangelistic in nature and seek the transformation of society through the preaching of the gospel. So evangelism is important. Following the Lord's design for heaven on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While premillennialists and amillennialists believe that we and understand that we are receiving the kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28, postmillennialists would see a responsibility to build the kingdom. And therein lies a major weakness of postmillennialism. Politics can easily assume too large a role in building the kingdom. Look, postmillennialism was really big in the early part of the 20th century in America. And then World War I gave it a mortal wound. While it was still alive at World War II, it was stamped out then. It's like, there's no way this world is just going to get better and better. I don't see it happening. But there's a resurgence of postmillennialism today. Not all are affected this way, but it's, it, it's easy for politics to become too important when you're thinking about this view. And if politics become too important, then you know what, what happens, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And pretty soon, you're looking for worldly ways to establish God's kingdom. And you could end up compromising scripture. But in fairness, these temptations exist for all these systems. So, again, not much of a sermon today. Much more of a Sunday school lesson, but a serious Sunday school lesson. All these systems have strengths and weaknesses. All four. There are variations within each system. Because now you've got progressive dispensational and new covenant dispensationalism, new covenant theology. We're constantly trying to find sort of a middle ground where we can all agree. And why didn't the Lord just make it clear so that we could know for sure? I don't know. If you think that view is ridiculous, well, just know that there are some scholars... And, and, and commentaries that you would very much appreciate who hold each of these views. So you can't just throw them out and say they're illegitimate, they're not worth considering. <clears throat> Here's what we do know. Remember from our study of eschatology at the beginning, three points upon which we all agree. Jesus is coming again. We hope it's soon, and we better be ready. There is nothing in any of those systems that says Jesus can't come today. So let's all pray for it. Alan Bandy, who is a professor of New Testament and Greek at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, had this to say about the matters that we have considered today, and I offer it as a conclusion. Quote, when studying Revelation and eschatology, it is all too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, 
and the devil. And to remain faithful to him at all costs because he will make all things right in the end. Whatever view one thinks best reflects the teaching of Scripture, it must always be kept in mind that Scripture always presents the doctrines, the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. In the end, perhaps John Frame draws our attention to the most important eschatological point. So far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience, close quote. And one command that he gives over and over and over in the New Testament is to live together in unity. Even if we have differences of opinion on not secondary issues, but tertiary, third tier issues. That's what these are today. You may feel very strongly about your position You may have thought before this morning that the others are not only wrong, that these people, something's wrong with them and their relationship with Christ. At the very least, I hope you understand that there are godly men and women who are very thoughtful in their approach to Scripture, who may believe differently than you do. It's one of the reasons I have avoided these topics for 25 years. Everybody wants to talk about the end times, but it always has the potential to divide us. May that not be the case. Jesus is coming. We hope it's soon. We better be ready. Let's pray. Lord, In the mountain of information and reflection about these different systems, may we not lose sight that it's Jesus' kingdom that we are talking about. Whatever way you land and fall on these issues, we're thinking about the time when all wrongs will be righted when all questions will be answered, all sorrows done away with, and we are with Jesus for eternity. So Lord, may the knowledge of our relationship with him and the reality and the experience of our relationship with him lead us to holiness and godliness and patience and forbearance with those who see things a little differently than we do. We commit ourselves to you this day. And it's in his name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand together? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.